When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Sometimes you can learn more from the news by looking at what they got wrong instead of what they got right. When stories need to be corrected, the reasons why they were wrong in the first place can be revealing. And when stories disappear or get changed without explanation, well, there's always an explanation for why there was no explanation. But it can be hard to get. It can be hard to get that story behind the story, to learn just what it is that prompted editors to remove a news story or to radically alter it. But if you can get to the bottom of it, what you learn usually speaks volumes about the news organization in question. Today, the news organization in question is Black Press, a chain of community newspapers in British Columbia that I haven't talked about much before. And the story that suddenly changed, without explanation, was about the Wet'suwet'en protests. The news story was not about the standoff in the woods between the RCMP and the hereditary chiefs and their supporters over the coastal gas link pipeline at the Unistoten camp. No, it was about something that happened hundreds of kilometers away, in Victoria, the province's capital, where a political demonstration was held in solidarity with those who were opposing the pipeline. Things got ugly in Victoria, between the police and the protesters. First, there was one version of these events, reported by Black Press. And then, all of a sudden, where that first story had been, there appeared a very different story. Producer Alex DeBoer has spent a lot of time figuring out why. We give you her report in a minute. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Jacob Stone, Blair Waterhouse, Thomas Blampied, Yeo Ferraz, Sahel Usin Rojas, Quinn Weber, Caleb Edwards, and Catherine. My name is Catherine Johnson, and I live in Connecticut. I'm just a dumb American, but I listen to and support Canada Land so I can keep my Canadian husband informed about what's going on while we are stuck here in the States. I grew up reading the Peace Arch News, the local reg, as my mom called it. It was the free community newspaper that covered my hometown of South Surrey, British Columbia. My parents read it to get the scoop on the truly municipal, 
Little League sporting events, garage sales, real estate listings, and so on. I was actually featured in the Peace Arch News once in high school when I came third in a filmmaking contest, and my mom was very proud. Local rags like the Peace Arch News are also stuffed with ads. That's generally why they're free. They aren't always prestige papers, but their journalism connects and informs communities. I have a deeper respect for them now that I'm older, and now that the news I most care about and prioritize is local. That's why the story I'm about to tell you bothers me so much. It's the story of one article, published a couple years ago in the Victorian News. It's also the story of Black Press, the company that owns the Victorian News, as well as over 80 other publications in BC. But mostly, it's a story about Gina. I've always been, like, even when before I had any politics, I was, like, into, like, punk music, so I kind of was always, like, a little bit, like, anti-authority. My name is Gina Mowat. I'm Gixan on my father's side. I'm from the house of Lutkutsiwis and Shimwitzin, um, Frog Clan, and uh, my mother is of settler descent. Gina is a student. She's doing her PhD in child and youth care at the University of Victoria. She also has degrees in history and native studies. Like I studied, I've been studying indigenous resistance uh, for a long time. And I've heard lots of stories about like from my family and my nation uh, resisting ongoing colonialism. Around 2014, Gina saw a film called Resist, the Unistotans Call to the Land. Eli Hurdle. Where are you from? Victoria, BC. We do the free prior informed consent on the bridge that just comes from Gidimdan territory into Gunastatan territory. The documentary was screened at a tiny anarchist bookstore in Victoria. They had set up like a projector and like a screen on the back wall, and it was just like packed full of people. There was probably like 50 or 60 people in there. Have you worked for industry or government that's destroying our lands? What kind of skills do you bring, and how will your visit benefit my people? There was an auspicious energy in the room. For many, including Gina, this was their first in-depth look at the Unistotan people, a clan of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation. The documentary told a story of resistance, the way one Indigenous community was fighting major oil and gas projects that threatened both the environment and Wet'suwet'en sovereignty. This territory has been unseated and has always been unseated. It belongs to the Unistotan. They've never given it up to anybody, given permission for anybody else to make decisions on it. That's why they're working on For industry and uninvited people to be on the territory, like seeking to destroy it for profit, like that is against Indigenous law. Gina was moved by the Wet'suwet'en people's struggle. The way that this community was willing to take on some of the most powerful forces in Canada oil and gas companies, and the government. It was a spark of hope during an otherwise bleak time. That's why, in January of 2020, when the Wet'suwet'en fight against oil and gas companies made international headlines, Gina decided to do something about it. 
Without a word, the trees toppled across a crucial access artery at the center of a long simmering standoff speak volumes. Conflict over a natural gas pipeline in northern British Columbia is intensifying. All of the permits are in place for this project to proceed. It will be proceeding. Last week, a BC judge issued an injunction saying opponents could not block coastal gas link from accessing that area. But Witsowitan chief sent an eviction notice to the company, ordering it to leave their territory. At this time, Gina is 700 kilometers south of Wet'suwet'en, watching everything unfold on the news and social media. Indigenous land defenders and their allies were putting their bodies on the line to protect Wet'suwet'en territory. There was a real fear that they'd be attacked by the militarized RCMP. On January 7th, the Unistoten resistance camp put out an urgent call for solidarity actions. So Gina came up with a plan. Like late at night, I think it was around like 10.30, I got a message from some friends that I mostly knew over like social media and they asked uh, asked me to help them find a location for uh, an action for the next morning. Victoria is where all the like, pro- like provincial, like big provincial um, offices are um, and like where all these decisions are made. So it's like an important place for actions. Gina suggests the group demonstrate at the Ministry of Energy Mines and Petroleum Resources. They'll occupy the government building and make a bunch of noise until Energy Minister Michelle Mungle agrees to speak with them and until Premier John Horgan meets with the hereditary chiefs. At 11 a.m., Gina and her friends enter the ministry. Some folks were like in full regalia and it was kind of the plan to go in there and be like, we're, you know, these young indigenous folks, all innocent. And then I thought we were just going to like sit in the lobby there. And then someone like walked in, like used a fob to get in the second door to get into the, uh, the second corridor. And when they did, a couple of the youth just like bolted through and then, you know, people start yelling, like, just go, go, go. The group bursts into the second corridor, an area designated for authorized personnel only. And the security guards, like, tried to grab them and stop us. And then we all just, like, pushed our way through and made it into that corridor. And then we all kind of got, as soon as we got in there, we got our banners out and we started recording and we started singing and drumming. Yeah, keep singing, guys, keep singing. We are currently occupying the the Ministry of Energy, Mines, and Petroleum Resources. We are demanding to meet with the Minister of Energy, Mines, and Petroleum Resources. It was like really, really powerful being in a time, it was like a really, really small room and just like the energy and like the the drum beat. Um, everyone who had drums was drumming and we were like singing, like we sang the Woman's Warrior song. We're singing here uh, in, in risk of security. We're singing here, we're holding strong. And uh, we, we just request that um, you share this, you share what's happening and uh, you, you send prayers our way because it's, it's gonna be a really difficult day. We were like insisting that we are staying until the demands are met and we're there peacefully, we have no weapons, we're um, there in ceremony and like standing up for our rights. 
two hours turned to three, then five, then ten. The energy minister and Premier Horgan had not acquiesced to their demands. And things were starting to get tense. Indigenous youth uh, defending lands. Okay, they're coming to arrest. That was after, like, many, 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 many hours. Okay, police are coming to arrest us, guys. Like, okay, Nigel says that they're planning to arrest us here and then attempt to move us. It was probably like two in the morning at that point where the police liaison told us that they weren't going to negotiate with us anymore and they were going to arrest anyone who stayed. So right now I'm arresting you for trespassing a concrete section two sub three of the trespass act. Gina says the police came into the corridor and grabbed each person individually. Do you want to go When it was Gina's turn, two cops came into the room for her. They knelt beside her and explained what was about to happen. I like went limp and like went on like fell onto the floor and then they grabbed I think under my arms and dragged my body from the corridor that we were in into the main lobby. I just kept saying I'm not resisting arrest and like people were recording it from outside to make sure that like that was all on the record and then in the lobby there was like 10 cops and so I was laying on the ground and there was 10 cops all around me and were you afraid yeah it was like that that's kind of the moment where I was like like completely alone with like all of these cops around me that are all have like loaded weapons on them and then they put me in the back of the police van and shut the doors and then that's when Like, yeah, that's when I was, like, very alone. (laughs) The lights are off when we're driving. And, yeah, like, you can't see where you are, obviously. There's no windows. And where they took me was, like, a couple blocks away, but it felt like they were, like, driving around in circles and they were, like, slamming on the brakes and, like, hitting the gas. And because, like, my I was cuffed, I was, like, flying around in the back of this, like, metal cage. It's a two-minute drive from the ministry to the Victoria police station. But Gina estimates her trip took about 20 minutes. She says she wasn't seatbelted and her hands were cuffed behind her back so she couldn't protect her head as she was hurled around. When Gina eventually arrives at the station, the police get out and chat with each other while she sits in the back, handcuffed. I was really, really just trying to focus on, like, breathing. And just because I was like, I don't know how long I'm going to be here. I don't know where I am. I don't know what's going to happen to me. I was trying to keep myself calm, but I could, like, hear them outside, like, mocking us and... Just, like, making, like, comments about how we're dumb and how, like, just, like, laughing about it, which made me feel, like, really, really unsafe. Gina says she sat in the van for about an hour. Then the cops take her out of the van and lock her in a cell. A few hours later, early on the morning of January 22nd, she's released from police custody. Gina says her body was a bit bruised and really sore for days after that, And she was psychologically sore, too. After her release, Gina checks what people are saying on social media. She notices livestream videos of the sit-in are getting lots of views. 
Same with pictures of the handcuffed land defenders being loaded into vans. Many are infuriated at the police for their behavior. They consider the arrest of indigenous people at a peaceful demonstration to be inconsistent with Canada's commitment to reconciliation. But other people saw it differently. And that's mostly because of a statement the Victoria Police released the morning after the sit-in. Like Vic PD, like they had been already saying that we were being like violent or whatever and like that sort of thing. And so just like wanting to like counter that narrative, I think was like really important. The police press release says protesters outside the building made efforts to impede the lawful arrests. It also says protesters surrounded the officers, pushed and shoved them. Did you observe any of the land defenders being verbally or physically abusive to the police? No, like absolutely not. The only interaction I had with them was, and any of us, any of the Indigenous people who were arrested that night, um, was when they were just like dragging our bodies across the floor and putting us in the cop van. And we still, at that point, we didn't say anything or like, yeah, there was nothing like abusive that we had said or done to them throughout the whole night. At the time, we were like hoping to get more media coverage of the action just for like what's owed in solidarity. Like it was like during like a really intense time up there. So for me, it was like any kind of coverage to get people thinking about supporting the what's owed in struggle. This is where Black Press enters the story. Five days after the arrest, Devin Biddle, a reporter with the company, asks Gina for an interview. I was at a coffee shop that I frequent, um, and the person who interviewed me was, like, really young. Uh, yeah, we just, like, met and had coffee and sat, and it's kind of like, a, it was, like, a busy... I just remember it being kind of busy, and we were, like, shoved in the corner of this coffee shop, and there were people around, and I was, like, talking about the arrests. Gina tells Devin how the police violently dragged her and the other land defenders across the floor. She talks about the disorienting drive to the police station. During the interview, Gina made sure to emphasize that she's a land defender, not a protester. She tells Devin that this is important to her. She wants readers to realize that the sit-in wasn't just an expression of anger. It was an expression of an active and ongoing struggle. It was an attempt to protect the environment and an Indigenous community— against an oil and gas project that still had the potential to be stopped. And she was kind of like, okay, I'm going to have to like clear that by all my like superiors. Um, and so I felt like it didn't seem like she had like a whole ton of like authority there. On February 1st, 2020, an article with the headline, Wet'suwet'en Supporter, Heartbroken and Terrified During Arrest at Victoria Sit-In, runs in the Victoria News, a black press newspaper. The article is a profile of Gina's experience at the ministry, told from her perspective. She describes her arrest as violent and says, quote, They were bullying us. They were mocking us the whole way through. And it wasn't just about doing their jobs. They went beyond that. No comment from police is included in the story. When I read it, I was like, okay, this is good. That actually, like, included, like... Some pretty important stuff, like especially about our experiences with Vic PD. And Gina would have been happy if the story stopped here. 
if Black Press left this version of the article online. But they didn't. The Victorian News took down the first version of Gina's story and replaced it with a rewritten story, which was published on February 7th. This version is a truncated, watered-down version of the first. In it, Gina is referred to as a demonstrator, not a land defender. Many of her quotes are taken out, including her account of the arrests and her mention of the rough ride. In this article, the demonstrators were simply arrested, loaded into vans, and driven to the Victoria Police Department. And this version of the article included a video statement from the Vic PD. Hi, everyone. I'm Chief Delmanic of the Victoria Police Department. There's a lot of misinformation that's being shared online about the protests and especially about the actions of the Victoria Police officers. Now, here is something that you may not have heard, which I think is really important to highlight. Our officers experienced verbal and physical abuse in the course of executing their lawful duties. Our officers were pushed, they were kicked, and they were subject to race-based verbal attacks. I'm quite proud of the officers maintaining a very high level of professionalism and restraint in carrying out duties in very difficult circumstances. Now, I've been notified that there's... It felt so, like, gaslighty for them to include all this, like, information that was, like, that's not true, that the, like, police were saying that, like, we were being abusive and disrespectful and we were resisting, um... Like, right after I, like, tell the story about, like, how violent they were being towards us as, like, unarmed, like, peaceful young Indigenous people in, like, an empty building, and then to, like, make us look violent, it's, like, it's sickening and also not that surprising, I guess. It's pretty common for media organizations to make small changes to factual errors after they publish a piece. The standard way to do this is to just keep the story up, make the change, and then note somewhere, usually at the bottom of the story, what change has been made. This was different. The original story had been taken down entirely, and it had been replaced with a new story that was almost a flipped image of the first. Instead of the police pulling apart and handcuffing the land defenders, now it was the protesters that were violent. Now, according to the police chief's statement, it was the protesters that were racist. And nowhere in this news story was there any mention of the first article. It was just gone. What did happen? How did the original story about police violence get replaced with a far more cop-friendly story? Hello. Watch out for the steaming piles of shit on the dock. <laughs> These are left by the otters for some reason. Don't like doing it in the water. They want to do it on our dock. The otters? The otters. Oh, wow. To answer that, I needed to know more about black press. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world. And BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're 
chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Yeah, we're good. Okay, cool. Um, can you start out by introducing yourself, please? Yeah, my name is Mark Edge, and I'm a media researcher, I'm a journalist, and an author. And uh, we're sitting on your sailboat. It's yes. quite quite beautiful. How big is the sailboat? Uh, the, the boat is about 12 meters, or 40 feet, and uh, the, actually, uh, the first thing I did when I took uh, the buyout money from Pacific Press was I went and sailed down to the South Pacific. Uh, and back, but I came back with a PhD, so it's kind of a long story there. Mark was a courthouse reporter for the Vancouver province for many years. In 1993, he accepted a buyout and took an early retirement from journalism. These days, Mark writes academic articles and books about Canadian news media. He's particularly interested in the business side of the industry, an area he believes is both vital and not very well understood by most journalists. As a result, uh, media uh, companies have been able to, a large extent, I, I feel, bamboozle the public and even their own journalists about um, the, the state of their fortunes, which is uh, much better than they let on, let's just put it that way. So can you tell me what Black Press is? Well, Black Press is the largest newspaper chain in British Columbia. It owns um, weekly and uh, uh, mostly non-daily newspapers. Uh, they, David Black, he started um, with one newspaper in Williams Lake, BC, and he grew that into the largest chain in the province. Mark tells me David Black founded Black Press in 1975 when he bought the Williams Lake Tribune off his father. Today, David is in his mid-70s and still running the company, which he owns 80% of. The other 20% belongs to Torstar. 
Well, David Black um, uh, at one point worked for uh, Torstar Corporation, the owner of the Toronto Star, in its acquisitions uh, department. Um, Torstar has a, a chain of community newspapers in Ontario they call Metroland, and they've bought up uh, lots of newspapers, and uh, I believe that's where he learned the art of acquisition. When David launched Black Press in the mid-1970s, the newspaper business was a good business to get into. According to a 1970 Canadian Senate committee report, newspapers had profit margins of up to 17.5% after taxes. That's almost twice the profit made by manufacturing and retail industries at the time. David saw an obvious opportunity. He took the skills he learned at Torstar and slowly started purchasing BC newspapers. This was a, a strategy of many chains, a growth strategy, buying out independent operators um, and uh, consolidating operations, cutting costs um, by just having one head office instead of several. And um, it was a very lucrative business and, and that was the incentive for growth. I also wanted to ask, um, in the present, we are always hearing about how tough it is for newspapers right now. Um, there's less advertisers, people don't want to pay for news, all these things. How has Black Press stayed afloat? Oh, like uh, most newspapers, uh, Black Press has had to make make deep uh, cuts to their their costs as their revenues have gone down. But the one thing that I found uh, from studying newspapers is that they're highly scalable. You can make them larger or smaller in fairly short order. So they've been able to reduce their costs almost in lockstep with their revenues as they've declined. Unfortunately, the easiest and quickest cuts are made to journalism. That means layoffs. And it means reporters and editors still employed at Legacy Media are expected to produce more with less pay and smaller teams. And this downscaling has preserved high profits for owners. Uh, there's a new uh, phenomenon in journalism called the hamster wheel, in which journalists have to run faster and faster just to keep up, trying to do uh, more with less. And then, of course, uh, in addition, they have to post on social media, Twitter and Facebook. So um, a journalist's life is even more frantic than it used to be. Mark says that it's not just that less journalism happens now, but that journalism is less capable of challenging powerful institutions. Because really, digging into something like police abuse, that takes time and money. But reprinting a press release? That's much cheaper. Not to mention, the companies that own most of our local newspapers, they might just be more politically aligned with the police and oil companies than their predecessors were. David Black, for example, started Kitimat Clean in 2012. Kitimat Clean, according to their website, is a private company set up to plan, construct, and operate an oil refinery, specifically for processing Alberta oil sands heavy crude oil. Kitimat is where bitumen and natural gas from Alberta oil sands arrives before being shipped to overseas markets. And more specifically, 
It's the LNG terminal for the coastal gasoline pipeline. So does Gina's story have something to do with David Black's investment in BC's LNG industry? Or in the company's cutbacks to journalism? I need to talk to some Black Press insiders to find out for sure. Well, thank you again for making time to talk with me. Um, can you introduce yourself however you would like to? I mean, I guess you could say I'm, I'm like early mid-career in terms of journalism. And why are you speaking to me anonymously today? We were told that if we got on Black Press's bad side, it would be hard to find a job in BC. And it's scary because... They own so many community newspapers in BC. It's scary to think that you're not able to stay in the province or find another job in the province because you've spoken up about things that you think were injustices at at Black Press. So um, when I was working for Black Press, there was another reporter who had left. She had gotten another job somewhere else. And she made kind of like a public statement about Black Press. And so my publisher took me into her office and told me never to do something like that because this is a small city and she has good connections and she was just trying to give me some personal advice. Don't burn bridges. I was able to find two former Black Press journalists who had information about Gina's story. We agreed to withhold their names and disguise their voices because of the legal and professional risks involved in speaking about their experiences with Black Press on the record. They told me that in order to understand what happened, first I need to understand what it's like to work at Black Press. I graduated from journalism school in 2018, and so I've been in the field for about three years now. And my first job was with Black Press. And I landed that job probably about two months from my final class to me being in the desk and writing my first story. Why did you want to be a journalist? Growing up, my mom was a religious 6 p.m. news person. And so we only had three channels when I was growing up. So I grew up watching mostly just the news. I always used to stay, always used to say, I want to know something about everything. I had a background in storytelling in, in a way. Um, I was always interested in literature and theater. But what I really wanted to do was to be the one to start telling those stories and to tell stories about groups that are marginalized and to lift up voices and and bridge gaps, essentially. I'm just interested in people, and I'm interested in what's going on in people's lives and what's affecting them. And I I got into journalism to to try and affect change and to make a difference and to make make things better. Um, I think Black Press's approach is to hire people who are fresh out of journalism school, A, because they're cheap and... And Black Press doesn't pay a whole lot when it comes to um, living wage. 
and and B because young reporters are a lot more eager to just do whatever you, you want them to. They're eager to please. My sources tell me people who spoke up about journalism standards or work conditions in the newsroom faced not-so-subtle consequences. For example, they wouldn't get the vacation time they requested or the assignments they wanted. What was the rate of turnover like? It was fast, yeah. I would say, um, yeah, I saw probably three or four reporters leave within their first three months. Oh, gosh, turnover is ridiculous. (laughs) Um, I worked there for about two years, I would say, and in my time there, I saw so many reporters come and go. Can you paint a picture of what a typical workday was like for you as a reporter for Black Press? Yeah, um, so you come in and um, you probably have about a half an hour to find whatever stories you plan on working on that day. And then there's usually a morning news meeting. Um, We had to file four to five stories a day. So you'd probably want to get your first story filed by about 10 a.m. in order to to keep on that fast pace. And if you're writing four to five stories a day, that gives you like roughly an hour and a half to write each piece. So what kind of stories are you able to produce in that window of time? Um, stories with one or no sources, usually. Um, we got a lot of like quick turnarounds, so it would just be a news release that was emailed to us, and you would just rewrite it, basically. You were encouraged to talk to the least amount of people as possible. Every single police presser that we got was just literally written verbatim. There was no... There was no... There was no calls made, there was no quotes to be gotten, like... You know, if it was a Vic PD presser, that was gospel and you wrote it. I It was definitely a positive relationship that I think Black Press strove to keep intact. Like, it just seemed like the company always did a little bit extra, went a little bit further to make sure that these organizations, that these bodies in power were happy with the work that was coming out about them. The company. Last week, a BC judge issued an injunction saying opponents could not block coastal gas link from accessing that area. But with so, much... so you were reporting for Black Press in January of 2020, um, and this is the time when solidarity actions are happening around the province and, and around the country um, in support of the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs uh, who are opposing the coastal gas link pipeline expansion through their territory. Um, so that was, a, I remember it being a very um, challenging time for a lot of journalists who um, had to learn to cover and um, describe a type of protest that wasn't necessarily a protest. And it, it was kind of, um, it was an interesting time to be reporting and, and a really crucial time in Canada's history. What was it like um, reporting during that time? I, it was, reporting during that time, I think, was messy, I think is the best way to describe it. Um, We were learning how to cover Indigenous issues in a responsible and ethical way that wasn't harming the community the way media has done 
um, so much in the past. It was really exciting because this was a national news story. This was getting attention all over, and it was in our jurisdiction. It was in our area. And so that was really exciting. I think one of the hard things that we dealt with as well was language. So we were making, as reporters, I remember we were making a conscious effort to not call um, the land defenders protesters, but those decisions that individual reporters made uh, were often questioned by our editorial team and, and also changed. I asked these former Black press reporters if they knew what had happened to the story about Gina. Had they heard what went down in those seven days between when the story was published and when the new version replaced it? From what I heard, eventually there ended up being some sort of hockey game, like shortly after that story was published. We are at the Save on Foods Memorial Center capital of British Columbia, Victoria, B.C. The rivalry series goes west. Just two days after the original story about Gina was published, a high-profile hockey game happened. And my sources tell me that Michelle Cabana, the publisher of the Greater Victoria Black Press Papers, was in attendance. It's a must-win tonight for Team Canada to have a chance to win the series. I, I, like, I heard a lot about it like the coming week or so, because we were all in the same newsroom. I had heard that at this hockey game, there were off-duty police officers who were not in uniform, and they were drinking. And there was an interaction between the publisher and the big PD officers. The... Victoria police chief, I think, um, got angry at our publisher, who was also at that same hockey game. And the officers were not happy with the way that they were portrayed, or the police department was portrayed within this story. And from what I heard, basically, the the police chief... um, I, th- I think the actual words from, from what I was told reamed, reamed out our publisher um, over, the, over the story and um, threatened to not speak with Black Press again for future stories. Vic PD, from what I was told, had threatened to blacklist Black Press if that was not changed. And the next thing I know, that story was taken down. Hi, everyone. I'm Chief Del Manick of the Victoria Police Department. Our officers experienced verbal and physical abuse in the course of executing their lawful duties. I can tell you... Del Manick, who is the Chief of Police and the Vic PD, um, I think it's like a tactic for them to justify what they did to us that night. I think that Vic PD needed to change that like like alter the narrative that I had put out in order to justify what they had done to us in that instance but also to justify like ongoing violence against land defenders um, because it marks us as violent marks us as abusive and unlawful and um, it's just like further perpetuates that narrative that like we are cri- like we're criminalized for like w- whenever we try to defend our, our lands. It made me realize that as a journalist, you have so much power. 
and I wasn't using my power the way I should have been. I was, I was not doing the real work of journalism, of, of getting to the stories that need to be heard. I was just scrolling on Twitter, like a lot of the journalists at Black Press end up doing because that's kind of all their reward. I mean, do you really think that that's your fault? You know, I I really wanted to be able to change the culture. Um, it's just, yeah, it, it wasn't my fault, but it felt like my fault. Both the Victoria Police and Black Press reporter Devin Biddle did not respond to my request for comment. Black Press editorial director Andrew Haloda declined to comment, but accidentally forwarded a response he received from Greater Victoria Black Press publisher Michelle Cabana, which reads, quote, Well, I'm really upset about this. Really. I can't believe this. What do you think we should do? I could answer these things. End quote. Michelle Cabana herself did not directly return my request for comment. So, did the police strong-arm Black press into changing their story? Did a publisher at BC's biggest news chain cover up the police's assault of an Indigenous woman at their request? If they did, what does that tell us about the way journalism works in Canada? What does it tell us about local news's ability to actually tell the truth? On the one hand, this story is shocking, and it's made me even more suspicious of legacy media. But in another way, I think this story is unremarkable. Look through your local newspaper or online news source. In many, you'll find police press releases published as news articles. Media organizations often report this stuff credulously, and most likely, no one will even notice. That is your Canada Land episode. If you like what we do, what our correspondents do, the stories they bring you from all across this country, please support us. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send. This episode was reported and produced by Alex DeBoer, with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Editorial oversight of this story by Andrea Schmidt. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do and you want to receive ad-free podcasts and other great stuff of this and all of our other podcasts, support us by hitting the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. 